Welcome to Kenmar. We come to a very complicated passage of scripture this morning, and I'd like to begin by raising a question. If our salvation depends on doing what Jesus taught, is there any hope for us? I believe there is, because the God who raised Jesus from the dead can raise us from our defeats over and over. We do not achieve our salvation by perfect performances. We receive it by trusting the perfect performance of Jesus, who was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. Of course, we should try to do as Jesus commanded, but the secret of discipleship is trust in God who raised Jesus. We will succeed in our discipleship not by right, nor by rules, but only by faith. We will go forth in grace alone. Thank you for joining us again. Today's scripture can be found in your bulletin. It is from Paul's Epistle to Rome, chapter 4, verses 13 to 25. Let us be attentive to God's word. It was not through the law that Abraham and his offspring received the promise that he would be heir of the world, but through the righteousness that comes by faith. For if those who depend on the law are heirs, faith means nothing, and the promise is worthless, because the law brings wrath. And where there is no law, there is no transgression. Therefore, the promise comes by faith, so that it may be by grace and may be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who have the faith of Abraham. He is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations. He is our father in the sight of God, in whom he believed, the God who gives life to the dead and calls into being things that were not. Against all hope, Abraham in hope believed, and so became the father of many nations, just as it had been said to him, so shall your offspring be. Without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, and that Sarah's womb was also dead. Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. This is why it was credited to him as righteousness. The words, it was credited to him, were written not for him alone, but also for us, to whom God will credit righteousness. For us who believe in him, who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. Thank you, Kristen. With no insinuation about the rest of our board, Kristen is one of our younger elders. Did I say that right? I think. Shall we pray? Eternal God, your spirit inspired those who wrote the Bible, and your spirit enlightens us to hear your word afresh. Help us to rely always on your promises in Scripture as we walk by faith. We pray in the name of the living word, Jesus Christ. Amen. Life comes from death. 
Perhaps there's never been a more counterintuitive statement made, but friends, that is the heart of the gospel message. Life comes from death. It's a paradoxical statement that should be a huge red arrow pointing us to God's grace, to what God has done for us. Only God can give life. Only God can breathe into corpses and make them live again. Only God does that. And it's all grace. We don't know all of what was going on in the Roman church that made Paul go to great lengths to make his point to them about life and death, um, about grace. But apparently, the perennial temptation to see our salvation as a result of our own efforts, our own obedience, uh, our, our own accomplishments was alive and well in Rome. And some, at least of these believers, must have made their assumptions about these things based on Abraham and how he was chosen, given a promise in the first place, which kicked off the whole stream of choosing and promising that culminates in God's Son, Jesus Christ. An author I came to enjoy when I was a seminary student was a Presbyterian pastor from Vermont named Frederick Beekner. And Beekner wrote a, a little book titled Telling the Truth, in which he writes, the place to start is with a woman laughing. She's an old woman. And after a lifetime in the desert, her face is cracked and rutted like a six-month drought. She's laughing because she's pushing 91 and has just been told she is going to have a baby. Even though it was an angel who told her, she can't control herself, and her husband begins to snicker, too. He keeps a straight face a few seconds longer, but they both wind up cracking up at this message. Even the angel is not affected. He hides his mouth behind his golden scapular, but you can still see in his eyes, his larkspur blue eyes brimming with something that the laughter of the old man and woman is only a rough translation of. The old woman's name is Sarah, and of course the old man's name is Abraham, and they are laughing at the idea of a baby being born in the geriatric ward and Medicare picking up the tab. They're laughing because the angel not only seems to believe this message, but seems to expect them to believe it. They're laughing because part of themselves want to believe it. So they're laughing at God and they're laughing with God. In Genesis 17, God is telling Abraham, yes, but your wife Sarah will bear you a son, and you will call him Isaac, which, by the way, in Hebrew means laughter. So Paul takes pains to do a little biblical education in Romans 4. Basically, his argument comes down to this. God's promise to save the world through Abraham and Sarah comes out of the clear blue sky. Abraham had no law to keep, no rules to follow to make him deserving of God's favor. 
God took the initiative and somehow gave Abraham the ability to believe the unbelievable, to imagine the unimaginable. And from his and Sarah's as good as dead bodies would come new life, a child, a son. There was nothing concrete God was offering Abraham and Sarah by way of evidence to persuade them that this would be true. What's more, it took another quarter of a century before the promises fulfilled for the child to be born. One year shy of that quarter century mark, God's messenger returns to Abram and Sarah to say that at long last, this time next year, it will happen. You will have a son. Sarah cannot do anything at that moment except once again laugh. It was ridiculous. It was impossible. It had to be a joke. Abraham was no longer the picture of virility, and his wife's womb was as good as dead. But there it was, the promise of new life emerging from death, the promise that God would do something no human could do. The promise was not earned. It was just spoken, and it was granted to Abraham and Sarah. Abraham had no law to keep, no hoops to jump through to impress the Almighty. He just stepped out onto thin air and embraced the idea that maybe, just maybe, God could bring life from death. And if God did that, it would be clear that it was all God's grace from first to last. Abraham did not contribute to it, did not finagle it, did not invent it. He just received it. All of this Paul knew was the beginning of the story, where a story begins can have a big effect on shaping how the story unfolds and how it's told. For God, he has a whole world of people to choose from, including a lot of fertile young couples who could be the, the, the ones to have this child. But no, Abraham and Sarah are the ones that he chose. God doesn't do the sensible thing. He could have picked a couple in their 20s, conceive a child, but it's more than that. A couple in their 20s would not have sounded the necessary note of death. And they could have decided that they wanted to take credit for this child somehow, some way. So God says to Abraham and Sarah, you will have a son. God gives life, and he's the only one who can. Of course, that didn't stop the people in Rome, apparently, and it hasn't stopped all kinds of people throughout history to the present day from concluding that salvation is somehow earned by us, by our intelligence, by our efforts, by our will. And I can't figure that out except for maybe it's all about human pride or it's about human arrogance or maybe it's living in denial that the human condition in a sinful world is as bad as God seems to think it is. Whatever the case, we hear that message, and it's quite simple. It's by grace alone that this occurs. By grace alone. God's gift. Here in chapter 4, I think Paul is summarizing the way he went about preaching all over the world, uh, a message that led a group of Jewish leaders called the Judaizers to attack Paul. 
to allege he was distorting the centuries-old teaching of the Torah, Paul preached that salvation comes by grace alone, through faith alone, apart from works of the law. And that message made Paul's law-abiding critics very nervous. And I pictured that the battle was shaping up like this, kind of like, like Jesus' uh, parable in Matthew 20 of uh, the, the laborers in the vineyard. It wasn't fair that those who worked only an hour should get the same pay as those who began work at sunrise. They'd slaved all day. And here come some latecomers at the end of the day, and they're being paid the same wage. You see? I think that's how the battle was shaping up. And Paul illustrates and proves his gospel of justification by faith alone by using the story of Abraham, a story that they knew forward and backward. Everyone knew that in the Jewish world. What I'm preaching all over the world is not new, says Paul. You can read it. It's a familiar story. You call the man Father Abraham, and his faith was credited to him as righteousness credited to him as righteousness, quoting from Genesis 15. Now, this happened years before Abraham was ever circumcised, many centuries before the law was ever given to Moses. It was his faith and simply his faith that, credited, that was credited to him as righteousness. So anybody who trusts God the way Abraham did, whether they be Jew or Gentile, will receive the same credit, says Paul. One could also point out, I suppose, that Paul scrubs up Abraham's image a bit here in Romans chapter 4. The fact is, Abraham's walk of faith uh, of being called from the land of Ur of the Chaldeans to go to a land promised had some fits and starts along the way, which Paul doesn't message. Uh, Paul says, we, without weakening in his face, faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead. Well, in the long run, that's true, but when he was dealing with the Pharaoh, he also lied to the Pharaoh about his wife, Sarah, calling her his sister. And then, of course, Sarah and Abraham together try to force the issue with Abraham having a son by Sarah's Egyptian slave, Hagar. Oh, yeah, Paul, that's part of the story, too. But all of that only highlights Paul's larger point that salvation could never have been up to us humans. We could never have concocted it. We could never have invented it. We could never have finagled it. We find it extremely hard to believe, as often as not, that God's promises and God's faith, uh, God's faithfulness, and God's grace is what we have to lean on entirely, completely. Let's take the four Gospels for a moment, uh, the story of our Savior's life, death, and resurrection. None of us could ever rack up the number of moral and ethical achievements that Jesus did. None of us could ever, ever do much of anything even remotely close to sacrificing our lives for the benefit of the world. Life has to come from death for a lot of reasons, and not least of which is making it crystal clear who deserves all the credit. 
all the thanks, and it's not us. It's not us. This means there are no qualifications for salvation, no conditions, no performance standards, no levels of achievement, no rungs to climb. Nobody is shut out because of what they've done or what they have not done. Nobody is excluded because of religious or ethnic or racial background. Salvation cannot be achieved, period. It can only be received by God's gracious gift of Jesus. You know, the strange fact about this is that this makes salvation universally inclusive for all who believe. But it makes it also narrowly exclusive for all who, again, believe and must believe. That is exactly what God has promised. He made his promise to one man out of the whole human race, one pagan who was going about his business, didn't even know God existed, and this hitherto unknown God promised this one-time pagan man and his wife that they would have a son, and indeed they would become the father of a great nation and the mother of a great nation. And God promises salvation by grace to all who simply do this, take God at his word and trust in him. It's not about our performance. It's about God's promise. Amen.